Well, good morning again. Uh, We have been talking together about what Christians believe using the Apostles' Creed as our guide. And this morning, we're going to talk about that line in the Creed that says that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, We talked about Jesus' resurrection back at the end of November. This line in the Creed is about our own resurrection. So I want to read for us from Romans 8, and as I read it, you'll notice that Paul does not use, the Apostle Paul does not use the word resurrection in that passage, but that is exactly what he's talking about here. Uh, He calls it the redemption of our bodies. So let me read from Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now, uh, as we always do, that you would use this word uh, that we've read together, that we've heard together that we're going to talk about together to lead us to the word who bears our flesh, the resurrected and ascended Jesus. That you would show us again this grace that you have given us in him. And in particular, as we talk about this, this mystery, that our own bodies will be redeemed. Father, help us to just get a taste, a glimpse a sense for what that might mean for us, not only in the future, but for now. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you may have heard this story before, but I couldn't uh, resist telling it again, um, particularly around this passage in Romans 8. Uh, Allison and I uh, had midwives. We worked with midwives for the birth of our three girls. And, of course, they cared uh, for Allison during her pregnancy. They monitored the progress of our children as they were growing in the womb. Uh, But these things were, in very real ways, just overtures to the main music um, when Allison was in labor at the hospital and getting ready to deliver. Then their work was to be present with Allison and to help her in her hard work of, of labor and of delivery. Well, I'll spare you all of the details, and I'll just tell you that uh, <clears throat> the birth of our first daughter, Ellie, was a particularly long process. Uh, Allison labored for a really long time. 
And so when it came time for the final moments of that beautiful symphony, and by that I mean the pushing, uh, all of us in the room were pretty tired. It had been a really long time. I had not slept in a really long time. If that sounds like I'm starting to make excuses, you are correct. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not proud of this at all. But I have to admit that when it started, when the pushing started, rather than having a burst of energy and adrenaline and enthusiasm, I freaked out. <laughs> and when Allison started pushing, I walked out of the hospital room. I slumped over in the hallway as the nurses and doctors walked by. Now, part of the reason I did this, I think, is because I'm not that medically strong. <laughs> I uh, start to see spots and get faint when people cut themselves. But mostly it was because, to be honest, I did not have whatever it was that I needed to have in that moment when the going got the toughest. But I'll tell you who did not flag in that moment. Allison did not flag in that moment, and neither did our midwife. She was as present for Allison in those last hours as she had been present with her in the long hours leading up to it. And I am absolutely certain that part of the reason that that was true was that unlike me, neither of them had lost sight of what was coming. There was this indescribable happiness that was ahead of them, and the hope of welcoming Ellie into the world is what gave them the patience, what gave them the endurance that they needed to keep their wits about them and together to do the very, very good work that was at hand for them. And that's the image. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth. That is the image that the Apostle Paul uses to teach his friends in Rome and to teach us one of the most profound meanings of the resurrection. Because Jesus has been raised, one day the whole world will be made new again. Because Jesus has been raised, one day we will be made new again. Because Jesus has been raised, there is this indescribable happiness of a new creation that awaits us and of new bodies that await us. And that hope matters for us right now in the present. So that's how Paul starts this whole thing off. In verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth being compared to the glory of that will be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present moment, they're not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Now, I know that there is a way to hear that kind of statement in the New Testament and to fall very directly into an incredibly thin reading of the Apostle Paul into a very wrong-headed understanding of Christianity. The most simple form of that misunderstanding goes like this, that when Paul says something like that, that is just pie-in-the-sky escapist stuff. Right? That saying that there is a better future, promising that there is a better future is like a drug for the people. It keeps them docile, it keeps them disengaged with the real world, 
just waiting things out till it gets better. This is an immensely influential misunderstanding of the Christian faith. And unfortunately, it's one that's made inroads into the church herself in various forms. But church, that is not what Christianity teaches. You can't take Jesus' teaching about suffering seriously and believe that. And here, as we'll see, Paul teaches that belief in the resurrection of our own bodies is far from an opiate. It takes us into a deeper and more patient and more hopeful engagement with the world as it really is all around us right now. But he does take an interesting and beautiful route to get there. He takes a very circuitous route to prove his point. I think in part that's because Paul is a storyteller. He tells stories, and the big story that Paul tells over and over again is the story of God and his people and his world. And in that story, the climax is always, for Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus. All of the smaller stories of God's people either lead up to that, the death and resurrection of Jesus, or they flow out of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so here, Paul goes back to the prime story, to the first story, Adam and Eve and paradise and Eden. And the signal that he's doing that is in verse 19 when he says that the whole creation waits with eager longing. (laughs) I don't ever get tired of that image. The old uh, Phillips translation of the New Testament, some of you might know that old translation, I think it captures the color of this image. When it translates these lines in Romans 8 like this, it says the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight. The whole creation is like a little kid straining with all her might to see the first float coming down the parade route. You know, she just can't wait. The Psalms, of course, use this kind of language about the natural world all of the time. You can't read the Psalms and not run into this, but Paul doesn't say anything quite like this anywhere else in his letters, and I'm glad that it's here. It's a way of thinking about the natural world you know, in in a live way (laughs) that maybe we're not used to. And all I can say is that's what Scripture does. It gives us new eyes. It awakens our imaginations if we immerse ourselves in it. And here we learn that lions and lizards and otters and oceans and mountains and moons, they are all on tiptoe waiting. And Paul's clear about why creation is in that state, why they're waiting with eager longing, because right now, he says, it's in bondage to decay. It's been subjected to futility. This is where he uses that image that I mentioned at the beginning. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Remember, this is Paul, the storyteller, making us think about that first story This is the part about the sin of our first parents. They disbelieve God and they run away from him. And all of creation in that moment begins to deconstruct. They had been given the task of caring for creation, tending it, and they rebel against that task and they abandon it. And it sets this world on a destructive course. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons why the church, and I don't just mean this church, I mean the church makes a big deal about sin 
Because to put it plainly, it screws everything up. We don't need to do a whole lot of investigative work to see that this is true. We know in our bones that this is true, that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And if we have imaginations that are large enough to begin to take it in, Paul is telling us that all of creation is waiting for the day when that's not true anymore. The whole created order is longing for the day when it will work like it was made to work with a power and a beauty and a wholeness and a goodness that will make our words fail. We can hardly imagine what it will be like. I know, it's not like we don't get glimpses of that beauty from time to time. Of course we see that beauty in the natural world. Probably every one of us here this morning has seen something in the natural world that has made us have a taste for the beauty of this place and a sense for maybe what it will become. Right? Maybe it's the first time you looked at the moon through a telescope. Maybe it's the first time you ever saw Old Faithful in person. Maybe it's just the mystery of your tomatoes growing. I don't know what it is. But Paul is saying that the greatest beauty in the natural world, the greatest mystery of the natural world is just a shadow of what it will one day be like around here. It's in bondage now. But just wait until you see what it looks like when it's set free. You will not believe your eyes. He's telling us this world is pregnant with a power and with a glory that will one day take our words away. To borrow a phrase from the poet Hopkins, this world gathers to a greatness. That's God's intention for his good world. He's, he's going to restore it. As Paul writes in verse 21, he's going to set this place free. And church, I think that has some very practical implications for us. It means first and foremost that God's plan for this world in which we live is not for it to be blown to bits and forgotten while we fly away to someplace better. The ultimate future for this world is not that it would disappear. The ultimate future for this world is that it will be made new, that it will be resurrected. It will finally fulfill the good purpose for which it was created. And that means that the last thing that you and I should ever do with this world is just accept the futility and disengage and kill time until it gets changed. The world is God's world. And our vocation in it is to play a responsible part in its remaking. If, if we take seriously this language about childbirth, then we will see ourselves as midwives of the world who care for it, who tend it in the midst of her groaning. We can't just walk out into the hallway and wait for it to be over. This has profound effect on how we as God's people view creation and just as importantly, how we as God's people view our work in this creation. I mean, if we think this world is just going to be crumpled up and thrown away, then who cares, right? But God has something stunning in mind for this good world. And if it's going to be restored, that means that our work in it matters deeply. And church, I mean all of it. All of it. Our work in this world matters because it will carry over into the new creation. All 
of the difficult work of parenting that goes on unseen for years on end. All of the things that we do at our jobs that seem menial and unappreciated and unnoticed. All of the studying we do for things that never, ever get asked on the test. All of the projects that we do, all of the experiments that we do that fail, that don't ever move us closer to the discovery. Church, all of this matters. It all matters because Jesus entered into futility and groaning in order to redeem it forever through his death and resurrection. His work carries over into the new creation, and in him, ours does too. So now, finally, this circuitous route has gotten to its place. This leads Paul finally to make the connection between the way creation waits and the way you and I wait. In verse 23, he writes, and not only the whole creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. There it is. Yes, Jesus has entered fully into the futility and groaning of the world in order to redeem it, but this rescue mission was never for the natural world alone. Jesus entered into our futility and our groaning and our bondage. He did this for us. For people like you and me, yes, our sin messes everything up, and Jesus' response is not to walk out in the hallway and let everything take its course. No, as the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he enters into this mess, he takes it on his own back, he dies under the weight of our sin, and he is resurrected. And that means that our physical bodies will be redeemed. Because Jesus has been resurrected, we will be resurrected. What will that look like? I don't know. It takes an amazing amount of imagination to try and look through the veil to what it will be like. I mean, even, even the apostle himself struggles to find words for it. He tells his friends in Corinth, Behold, I tell you a mystery. <laughs> we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. This mortal body must put on immortality. It's hard for him, it's hard for us to find the right words to grope at piercing the veil of this mystery and to imagine what it will be like, that kind of life that we have been made for, that kind of life that you and I will one day have. I mean, we're made in God's image. Can you imagine what it will be like to have that image perfectly borne out in us? One of uh, C.S. Lewis' greatest gifts to the church, one of his many gifts to the church, was that he often tried to paint a picture of what we will one day be. He tried and tried and tried. 
But even a mind as imaginative and as agile as his knew that on this side of the veil, we would be left really with longing. <laughs> he writes, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see. But all of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall go in. And that is most certainly, church, that is most certainly what the Apostle Paul was teaching us here. We are right now shadows of what we will one day be. If we're in bondage now, just imagine what it will look like when we are set free from that bondage. We are, if we can even begin to take this in, pregnant with a power and a glory and a beauty that will one day make our words fail when we see it. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be changed. That is the indescribable happiness that awaits those who follow Jesus in faith. Wherever he goes, we go. And church, that's why we say with the creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body. In this hope, Paul says in verse 24, it is in this hope that we're saved. <laughs> and it's deeply practical stuff for Paul. The, this future hope has, because of the resurrection of Jesus, come into the present moment for us. That's what hope means for Paul. Like I said at the confession, we, we use hope in very thin, small ways. You know? I hope she says yes. But that is not the intent of that word hope in Paul's language. It is red-blooded and, and it is weighty. And part of growing up as Christian people is cultivating that kind of concrete hope in our lives. Because if we make space for that kind of hope, the way that we live in the present changes dramatically. Here's how Paul puts it. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That is patience tempered with hope. Patience tempered with hope. That is the way that Christians live their lives in a world and in bodies that are not yet what they should be. Let me ask you this. Have you been around people who have patience tempered with hope? They are beautiful. Like the rising of the sun. These are the kinds of people I want all around me. These are the kinds of people that this broken world needs. I want to be that kind of person by the grace of God. I want that for all of us. Patience tempered with hope. So I didn't have what it took in that moment. In that hospital room with Allison and the midwife and all of the other good people who were in there, I was focused solely on the pain of the present moment, the groaning, the futility. I was focused on my fear, my inability to make things go any better. I had no hope, so I had no patience. I disengaged, and I walked out. 
but wow, thank God. Out there in that hallway, something finally dawned on me, and that was, you know, that my first child was going to be born. That room was just a few moments away from being filled with this indescribable, holy, giddy, tear-filled joy. That was most certainly the future to which things were headed, and knowing that didn't make me less queasy, it didn't make me less scared, it didn't make me any less tired. But knowing that that was true was precisely what I needed to get up and walk back in that room and gut it out beside Allison, patience tempered with hope. And church, that is a tiny picture of the beauty of what Paul teaches us about our own resurrection. Because Jesus was raised, we will definitely be raised. We are headed to a new creation. This world will be made new. Our bodies will be made new. It is in this hope that we are saved. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Let me pray for us. Father, this, this great mystery that's in front of us, that we heard the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament say that you, you made a promise that you're going to lift this veil that covers all the peoples up, and you have done it in Jesus. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be a people who believe this, who have hope in this, who have patience as we wait for it, not just for that present moment where we know that it will be astounding beyond words, but for this present moment where we live in the midst of a broken world as a broken people. Help us to live as people that have patience tempered with hope for our good, for the good of this broken world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.